Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We brought this episode of Tartan Talks to Toledo, Ohio, to speak with Steve Forrest and Sean Smith of Hills Forrest Smith Golf Course Architects. Steve and Sean met with us a day before an estate sale at the Golf Course Architecture offices established by Arthur Hills. Steve and Sean are preparing to move out of those offices into home offices. And on this podcast, we discussed some of the memories of leaving a physical structure behind and also the spirit of being a golf course architect and some of the objects that golf course architects collect or receive on their career journeys. Before we get going with Steve and Sean, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they've been on board with this podcast for over three years now, and we're glad that we got to spend some time with Steve and Sean. Well, Steve and Sean, thanks for having us. This is a pretty interesting location to be recording a Tartan Talks episode. We're in a room with probably hundreds of golf course architecture plans, and we're at uh, the world headquarters of Hills, Forrest, and Smith, and it's pretty interesting they're doing an estate sale. And that, that's the first thing, just uh, for both of you, what is it like for you? You're moving out of this office into home offices. Just what type of memories do you have when you, you clear out the office, Steve? Well, as you keep clearing out, you gain more and more memories as you come across a plan that you did in 1984. And uh, sometimes it was built and sometimes it wasn't built. So you think of the people, you think of the site, you think of the circumstances of the project. Uh, so there's some, some sadness, but also a lot of thankfulness and blessedness for having had the opportunities that I've had over the last 42 years. Yeah. How about, how about for you, Sean? You've been working here for, what, over 20 years now? Yeah, I think, Guy, for me, as much as anything, I, you know, I think about to, back to the, the various clients that we've had and the personalities that Steve alluded to, but I, as much as anything, I probably think back to, uh, you know, 15 years ago when we had a group of 10, 15 guys here, and it was, in some ways, it was a little bit like a fraternity mm-hmm. um, where we would... We'd go play golf after work every night, and uh, you know we we sp- we had a lot of good times, um, you know, designing golf courses and playing golf, and we were all young and dumb and playing a lot of golf at the time. So you know those were those were good days, and I think about those an awful lot. Um, but I also think a lot about you know the the, the clients that we've had over the years and um, how how great it's been to work for the different people, and uh, you know some of those relationships are continuing even to this day, and um, and how you know, thankful we are to, to have those relationships even to this day. That's what we were going to get into here is kind of the spirit of the business and a spirit of being a, a golf course architect. Steve, how much do you have to love golf to, to do what you, you guys do? It's not a prerequisite, but I sure don't know why you would do it <laughs> if you didn't know the game and play the golf. There have been a few golf course architects over the years who did, don't play the game, uh, but it's just... So much more personal and rewarding to, I mean, I've never been a good golfer, but I've hit a good shot on occasion, so you have that feeling. And you also know what a good golf hole is, you know, mm-hmm. certainly learned that over the years as well. So uh, I, I, if I weren't a golfer, I certainly wouldn't be doing this. 
Yeah, how about for you, Sean? I mean, you you play the game at a high level. You, I mean, how much of this is just spurred by a love and passion for golf, and and is that why you're you're in this field because of that passion? Yeah, absolutely, guy. I mean, right. I, I've played competitively, and you know, obviously in high school as well as in college for a short period of time, um, and it, it was it was a, a driving passion of mine that that mm-hmm. led me from Montana to you know Mississippi to Louisiana and eventually here um, with with Art and Steve and. Um, it's, it's that passion that drives you every single day. And for me, it was, you know, initially it was just trying to have something to do with the game of golf because I really enjoyed it. Um, but I've, I've found over the years that it's, you know, that passion, uh, for the game and playing the game, um, is equaled as much by the ability to be creative and the ability to, to, to come up with ideas and, and, and try to make people think and, and, uh, you know, work their way around a golf course and trying to get them to, see the golf course and play the golf course um, in, in a creative way and make them think about how they're going to play the game. Um, that to me is as much fun as anything is that creative side anymore. Um, as I, you know, as I get a little bit older and my kids um, are younger, I don't play as much golf, but I, I still get a lot of drive from the, the creative side of it. Yeah, speaking of creativity, we're staring at all sorts of artwork and plans here. Is Where, where does that rank on the, the list of traits you have to have to be a golf course architect? Where does creativity rank? on the list i would say that it's got to be pretty high i mean i've known a lot of a lot of people that um as steve alluded to maybe aren't the greatest golfers in the world but you know from a creativity standpoint i think it's it's pretty important to be able to see and visualize what that end product needs to be and i think anybody who's in our industry has that trait uh at some level um, some of the guys that are out there that um, are really, really creative and do some interesting things, I love to see their work. And, uh, you know, to some extent, you, you kind of take their ideas and you, you play off of those a little bit too. But I think creativity is a big aspect of what we do. Steve, can that creativity be taught? Is that something you learn in, in school or is that something that just comes from doing it and repetitions here in the business? Oh, there's uh, certainly the opportunity to, to learn, the like I've learned the Arthur Hill's philosophy in terms of bunker placement and green design. Uh, when I first came here to interview Arthur, I'd done a, a rooting for one of my classes in school, and so he asked me what the strategy is on the first hole, and I said, well, you just hit it past that bunker into the fairway and then hit it under the green. So obviously I had very little skill or knowledge <laughs> of strategy at that time, uh, so I, I definitely owe a lot to Arthur Hills in terms of what I've learned, and uh, he's clearly been a mentor for for forty years for me. So, yeah. Besides creativity, what else does it take to, to last in this business? In your, your opinion, Steve? <laughs> Arthur's uh, answer to that was first of all an accommodating family because there was a lot of travel involved, or there was a lot of travel, um, and there, no aversion to to flying or. Uh, to travel, certainly. Um, I think you need to be organized in terms of uh, the way you approach a project, so certainly having a process. And you need to be a problem solver. Each uh, golf course is essentially a 20-piece puzzle where you're trying to put all the pieces together in the best uh, solution. Just 20 pieces? Well, I, I count uh, <laughs> the, the clubhouse and the... <laughs> And the practice range and then the 18 golf holes generally when I say that. 
we, we talked about the passion. This is a very tough business. You know, before we went on the air, we talked about some of the golf courses that just haven't got built or might never get built. Does the business side of it ever eliminate that that passion? Does it decrease your passion? Does it ever sour you on, on golf at all, Sean? Yeah, I, it, no question. There's There's been projects over the years. Um, you know, we were talking about the Wyoming Club, for example, which was a project that Steve and I did in, in northwestern or northeastern Wyoming, real near uh, Mount Rushmore. And it, it arguably maybe is one of the best sites I've ever seen. And when we were working on that project, Steve and I were just, you know, ecstatic about the potential for that place because it's just, I mean, you could see for 50 miles in any direction from the top of this plateau, and it was just a spectacular golf course. And unfortunately, as as time went on a little bit, we the the, the ownership decided to go a little bit of a different direction, and they uh, they ultimately pulled the money from it. And we're we're still actively trying to find somebody to to invest in it. But um, you know, it's one of those projects that you really uh, you pour your heart and soul into. So when it gets uh, you know, it gets pulled away and you don't get to, to pursue it like you wanted to. It, it It's a little disheartening. But by the same token, you use that as motivation. You take that same passion that you had for that and you, you pour it into the next project and you find a way to to make that one special. Um, and it may not necessarily be the best, uh, may not be a site like Wyoming Club um, where you're sitting on top of a plateau a thousand feet above the valley floor, but you, you it might be a, a bunker renovation at the, the club here in town and you you dig into the the history and um, you know the architecture of the the club, and you you really listen to what the members have to say, and you pour that passion into that, and making the absolute best product that you can for them. And you know when it's all said and done, and you see the excitement that comes out of them when uh, when they've got a bunker you know bunker renovation, and they're playing a new golf course. Uh, you know that's that's pretty rewarding in its own right. Steve, there have been some incredible highs that started in this building. When you think about what's gone from concept to implementation the people enjoying it but there have probably been just as many that that you, you haven't won or haven't gone your way how are you able to handle those and do you handle them better as your career progresses or do you handle them better early in your career <laughs> i definitely handled them better earlier in the career because we had uh, probably five more courses to take their place yeah. the wyoming club hurt so bad because it died in 2015, after we'd already built the practice range, I mean, it's just a world-class practice range. And, of course, if we'd have been building a new golf course in 2015, there are probably only two or three others in the world that were under construction at that time. So uh, that one really hurt a lot. Uh, again, you can just look across this table yeah. from Russia to Portugal to South America. There are projects here that we spent a lot of time on developing plans and for one reason or another, they didn't go forward. But again, we had a, a lot of uh, fun rides along the way as well. So, when you started clearing this place out, how how many plans were sitting around? How many bundles, boxes, cabinets of plans did you have? I know it's difficult to quantify, but try to give our listeners a visualization of of how many were in here. Yeah, we didn't give you the basement tour. We need to do that before we close. Well, each. You'll see a lot of six-foot drawing boards around here. Uh, I guess each architect, we had 11 architects at the peak, so each one of them had a six- or seven-foot drawing table. And those were for plans that we would roll out. And so each project, we'd have a 36-inch tube or 42-inch tube for the preliminary design phase, and then you'd have uh, a set for the construction documents and one for green sheets. Each project had at least three tubes. So. 
we built 200 projects, 150 renovations, and then double that for all the ones that didn't go. That's 600 times three. We probably easily had 1,800, 2,000 tubes in the basement. So uh, you're not believing that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, Sean, Sean, what was your first impression when you you walked in here in the late late 90s and saw all all the the, the drawings and tables and books and memorabilia? Uh, to be honest, I was in awe. I mean, I was just thrilled to be a golf course architect at that time. Um, you know, just a kind of a dumb kid from Montana, um, and having that opportunity, I was thrilled. But it didn't take long when you when you stood around in here and you talked to Art and you talked to Steve and some of the other guys that are around here and you saw all the drawing tubes that dated back to the the late sixties. Um, there was a lot of knowledge in this place, and um, it was it was an, it was a wonderful opportunity to to soak that up. And I'm still doing this. To, to this day with Steve. I mean, he's he's got uh, another 20 years of doing this on top of me. So there's a lot of things that he's learned along the way that I'm still learning from him. And, um, you know, we're continuing to do that every day. One thing that I found those plans out in the front room, that Pete Dye did a third nine for Inverness in 1965. I, I bet very few people know that. Jack Cairn was in here earlier in the week. He's kind of been the historian at Inverness, and he didn't know about it. But... I mean, I just discovered that in a flat file, cleaning out this office. I, I had no idea that that was downstairs. Yeah, what's your reaction when you find something that had been in your office for a long time <laughs> that you didn't know you had? <laughs> well, not particularly surprised, although that one, I'm just, I guess I was surprised that I didn't have any knowledge that they had considered a third nine holes at Inverness, uh, you know, yeah. Inverness clubs. And, and beyond that, it's, it's not unusual for us to have old drawings of our own. But to have an old drawing or two from Mr. Dye was pretty special, especially in light of his passing recently. Um, you know, it was, I think it was give or take about a month before he passed away, but it, it really put that into light, um, how special that, that find was when we were able to, to come across it. Well, this isn't the first time you two have been on the, the Tartan Talks podcast. We recorded an episode here three years ago, and I remember before we recorded it, you showed me how you design golf courses or, or make presentations to clients on a computer and the different conceptualizations you have. Steve, how much has that changed? I mean, it, this used to all be drafting boards and hand drawings when you started. How much has that part of the business changed? Well, as I said, we used to have the six-foot drawing yeah. tables, and now a 15-inch laptop will do pretty much what you need. Uh, occasionally, we'll need a, a printer to print out the booklets, but uh, a master plan used to be mm. one single sheet where you had each hole on that. Now, a master plan for us is, a, you know, again, 20, 25, well, I guess, for each hole, and then it may be an 80-page booklet with each hole uh kind of has a cost estimate and the plan view and then a photo simulation on it. So now this is a master plan. I'm pointing to a eight and a half by 11 book here, whereas this used to be a master plan, a, a 36 by 48 sheet. How about you, Sean? You were getting into the business right when that transition was happening, right? Or right, right around that time. Did you do a lot of hand drawings early in your career or were you completely of the, from the computer age? Yeah, we were, when I first started here in 98, we were just starting to transition into to AutoCAD at that point. We hadn't really photo, totally transitioned into Photoshop. That was another four or five years down the road. But in that first five to six years that, that I started working here by, you know, 2004 or 2005, we were almost entirely digital. 
um, and you know the ability to do what you know the construction drawings to create those construction drawings in AutoCAD opposed to doing it on hand. It's just it's it's immensely more efficient. Uh, and then, you know, graphically, when we introduce Photoshop and, and some of the other programs that are associated with it, the ability to take um, an existing photo and show a membership, this is what it looks like now, and this is what it'll look like when we're done, um, as opposed to looking at a two-dimensional plan on a, on a table at, you know, at a you know, 10,000-foot level. Uh, for a lot of those members, it's much easier for them to understand what you're proposing when you can show them a before and an after. Mm -hmm. And that, that tool in itself has been immensely successful for us in, in terms of communicating our vision to memberships and the different various clubs that we've worked at. I've got a couple of ancient history stories. When I first started here in the summer of 78, to make a single 8.5 by 11 copy, you would take the original and place it down on this, essentially a scanner, and it would scan that one sheet, and then you would take that uh, piece of paper that would come out and place it on another paper It would expose it. So it was a two-step process to get an 8.5 by 11 sheet. I remember in like 18, 1988 or something, uh, a client called and said, well, what's your fax number? And I had no idea what a, a fax machine was back in those days. Uh, so it's come a long way. I think Google Earth, if you'd ask what would you least like to give up, it would be Google Earth now because if somebody, back in the day somebody called from China and I could look at their site from halfway around the world and, and get a, a sense of what it was about. So. Steve, what was it like in the office when you were transitioning from doing it by hand to computer? How did someone like Arthur Hills you know, handle that change? How did the other people working in here handle the change? And was it a sudden thing, or was it did it did it happen gradually? Well, we're still waiting for Arthur Hills to transition to that <laughs> stage. I mean, I mean, seriously, he doesn't even do his own email. But yeah, I mean, we definitely got three or four generations that were in progress uh, through here. But uh, Dave Relford brought us into the computer age. Uh, I mean, he was an architect who worked here in the mid early 90s and he had an interest in computers and one by one we eventually switched over to the computer age and you know some drawing there was a, probably a year there where some of the drawings were computer drawings and others weren't. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the cup course at Palmetto Hall Plantation where it was done in the early computer days where they didn't have the spline function that would uh, smooth out the contours. So it was very angular and the client saw it and thought, well that'd be interesting. Let's build kind of a pyramidal or triangular golf course and that's what they did. So geez. did this change make the job easier or tougher? Did it make it more time consuming some of the shifts from hand to computer or is it actually made it even more time consuming? Oh it definitely made it easier. I mean I remember the days when we'd We'd have spent a week on a beautiful mylar sheet of paper like this, and it, you know, had all this graphite ready to, to go on it. Uh, and Art would come in and say, I think we should push that bunker a little bit further over there, and it, it would smear it. You know, he, he didn't <laughs> have much of a respect for the, for the graphite. So, and then other times the, the engineers would change something, and you'd have to go change the baseline and on a sepia. You'd have to get out and erase it with this physical mechanical eraser and it'd leave this scar mark on it. Whereas now if you want to change something you just hit a few clicks of the keys and it's good as new. Sean, where do you see it heading? 
That's a great question. <laughs> we have a story running in our March issue about the advances in, in turf grass management, and we asked uh, superintendents where technology is headed in that side of the industry. Where, where do you think it's headed in architecture? Are we going to reach the point of maybe virtual reality or something of that nature? Yeah, I mean, you can make an argument that we're, we're somewhat there already with golf simulators. I mean, the golf simulators are never going to be the, the game. Um, but you, you look at society and you look at younger folks today and, you know, it's an instant gratification society to some extent. And so a lot of those kids are out, you know, going to golf simulators where they can sit down and hang out with their friends or they're going to top golf where they can hit a few golf balls and have a beer at the same time. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that the game is going to maybe lighten up a little bit like that, um, that, you know, we'll, we'll get to a point where, it's okay to play three holes or six holes and it's okay to, to go out and spend time with your friends or your family or your kids and, and enjoy an hour as opposed to being stuck on a golf course for five hours, um, which is a little bit harder nowadays with, with time commitments and other things. Um, but again, I, I, I'd like to think that the game's going to lighten up at some point where it's not going to be, you got to wear a collar and you got to, um, you know, you got to adhere to certain standards, um, in, in, in terms of the game, uh, you know, the, the game itself needs to be more fun and it needs to be more enjoyable. And I think the only way that you're going to do that for the younger generation is to, to make it a little bit more like top golf. As much as I'm a traditionalist and I like the old aspects of the game and, um, you know, I was brought up in that and really certainly respect that. I, I think the survival of the game has got to, got to adapt. And if it doesn't, um, I think we're going to see a, a decline in the game. But you, you think about some of these new nine-hole golf courses that have come out where it's just a lot of fun, whether that's Winter Park or uh, a Goat Hill Ranch or some of those where you can go out and enjoy nine holes with your kids and, and, and have a good time in an hour or an hour and a half uh, and, and be off the golf course and then maybe go have drinks or go have a pop with your kid and uh, a cheeseburger. Um, that's more, I think, of the... The demographic of the game, or where it's where it's heading, as opposed to you know running off for the weekend and, and playing thirty six holes on Saturday and Sunday, and and mom and the kids are going to soccer games, and you get to do what you want to do. It's I think it's more family oriented. I think it's got to be more fun, and I think it's got to be geared towards that in order to be successful. I've got a couple more things that have changed a lot. It's become an instant profession. In the, in the old days, we'd do a set of plans, and the client would be looking for them. We did a lot of work in uh, South Florida. If it, the plans were going to Fort Myers, we could get it there overnight with Purolator Courier. If it was going 30 miles further down the road to Naples, it would take two days because the FedEx truck or Purolator truck didn't get that far. Another thing is you could... Uh, tell somebody it would take you a while to do something. Now everybody expects you to be able to do it in the morning. You know, if you if you have to change a plan, well, can you change that and get it to me? I've got a, a board meeting this afternoon, whereas, you know, we could have taken a week before. Prints, I mean, these prints that are here on this table. We kept a print shop in business. We could go there six times a day sometimes. And if you had a, a plan going out to bid, you had to start that morning assembling everything together packaging it up so you can get them out to six bidders and now it's what yeah you print you print six the, emails yeah you print out the pdf document and you you send out you know the the email to uh well it's one email to six different bidders at the same time yeah 
So architects today have lost the fine art of hand lettering and printing, and they also don't know how to roll a set of drawings. So. <laughs> yeah, speaking of print, we saw, you know, there, there are thousands of scorecards, yardage books, programs, old magazines, club histories, other type of golf books in here. Uh, what was it like digging some of those up, Steve? And what are some of your, your favorite golf books or golf course architecture books? Well, it was fun. Uh, I, I really didn't realize that Arthur kind of had a scorecard collection as well. I think it's kind of something architects do when you go play a golf course. You, you throw the scorecard in your bag and you bring it home. And well, Art, you know, threw them in, in his uh, desk drawer up there, and I just kind of discovered that. Um, certainly, uh, one of my the first tournament I went to was the Liggett and Myers Match Play Championship in '72 at. Uh, Country Club in North Carolina, and I told you the story of Nicholas sitting a one iron over my head to reach a par five and two. So, so that's a great memory. You're, I think everybody remembers their first tournament. You mentioned '94 Open at Oakmont. Um, uh, Art's got some really neat books. I think one of his favorites was uh, The Links by Robert Hunter, uh, and certainly the McKinsey books, the Down the Fairway. I mean, they're We've got a pretty good collection, nothing compared to Mike Hurdson, but you know, we had a, a nice collection of books uh, over 50 years of putting them away. Yeah, nobody can go book for book with uh, doc, Dr. Hurdson. How about you, Sean? What were some books that really evoked some memories for you when, when you looked through the collection here? And what are some of the ones that you've kept? Yeah, I, you know, The Spirit of St. Andrews is a good one. Um, I think it's Final Rounds. Um, it, it's not as much to do about golf course architecture per se, but the way it hit home f with the relationship with his dad and, and going to Scotland and um, that for me, it kind of epitomized my love for the game because it brought me close to my parents. It's a, it's a big part of who I am because I, I spent every weekend and, and probably three or four days during the week, certainly in the summertime, I probably played golf with my, my parents hundreds of times over summer. And so for me to be able to make that connection, um, for me, that's, that's what's special because it reminded me why I got into the game, why I love the game is because of that, that relationship I have with my parents. You know, most of us who visit a lot of golf courses come home with something, whether it's a hat, a ball, a shirt. For me, it's uh, yardage books. I'm a yardage book geek. Sean, when, when you've been in hundreds of pro shops. Is there one go-to thing for you when you go do these visits or when you're working on the site, you don't even think about bringing home any, any swag? Well, my, my wife will tell you that I'd love to buy a golf shirt. Um, Steve's seen me in a pro shop more times than you can count, watching me pick through every golf shirt in the, in the place. Um, honestly, I should go for something that's a little bit more long-lasting because eventually a shirt wears out and you got to retire it. But um, yeah, I've got a lot of I've got a little a lot of really good shirts, whether it be Royal Melbourne or uh, Maidstone or National Golf Links, Oakmont. You know, those are I, I can go through my closet and look at some of the logos on those shirts, and they, every one of them brings back a really good memory of a, a a day well spent on a golf course. How about for you, Steve? What 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 were, do you come home with? 
You know, in the early days, uh, when I was going to the ASGCA annual meetings, I mean, we were playing all these top courses, and I remember I would take a picture of every single golf hole we played, which is not the way to score on Cypress Point or anywhere else. So, you know, you're always running, you're always getting to the angle. So I've got, what you haven't seen is a slide collection. We've got like 10 volumes of single-page slides that... Uh, you know, I took over probably the first 15 years ago into ASGCA meetings, and then I finally realized you never look at these pictures <laughs> again. So I that kind of phased out. But I've always been a scorecard bringer homer, and uh, I like the yardage books as well. And I, I think every golf course architect and probably golfer has four times as many golf shirts and hats as they would ever need. I, I've probably got. 60 hats, golf hats, even, <laughs> even after I've thrown many away. So, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned mentioned pictures. Obviously, that, that's changed a lot. We all do them on our phone now. Do either of you have any photos from the courses that you've worked on that you've taken? Do you, do you have any prints at home? Is that something golf course architects uh, do for, for keepsake? Yeah, I'm pointing to the end of our table here, which is nothing but eight by ten glossy photographs of all the courses, or not all the courses, but quite a few of the courses that we've done. I can see Longaberger Bay Arbor. I know Golf Club of Georgia's in there, Half Moon Bay. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do take pictures of the yeah. course, and we certainly use a lot of them for marketing purposes because that's really what you have to sell a, a new client is you can't take. It. To every site, we can certainly show them a beautiful picture uh, of a golf course that you design. How about you, Sean? How many uh, hundreds or thousands of pictures do you have on your phone of golf courses? That's a great question. I uh, I scrolled through my phone the other day and I just thumbing down through it. I, I think I spent the better part of 15 minutes there looking at pictures, um, just repetitively scrolling through it, not slowing down. I think I'm was there for the better part of 15 minutes just scrolling through all the pictures that are on my phone. Part of them are, you know, my kids, but there's an awful yeah. lot of golf golf calls in there too. So, um, you know, my two passions, you know, my, my family and my and my golf. So I, there's an awful lot of both on there. But, yeah, there's there's every bit of probably a couple thousand pictures I've got on my phone. Not only just pictures that I've taken, but pictures that we've had taken of our courses. But, you know, I'll come across a really cool old, you know, picture of Augusta National from – you know, 1930s, that you've just never seen that angle. You've never seen the the bunker style um, as it, you know, prior to it evolving. Or you see an old picture of National Golf Links or North Barrick or something like that, and I'll take a picture and save it to my phone just so, as a reference so that, you know, next time I'm talking with a client about, uh, you know, a Barrett screen, I can say, oh, yeah, here's the, here's the one at North Barrick. It's one of the best, and you can show it to them. And... So I've, I've got a, a couple file folders on my phone that specific to those conversations for sure. Now, sure, it takes up a lot of space, but uh, how neat is it to be in a profession where there's so much memorabilia involved, swag, uh, uh, photos? I mean, whatever you want to call it, how neat is it that, that have physical mem memories of your work to go along with the mental ones, Steve? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I've been uh, in this project for eight months now it, uh, John Hill's art son retired at the end of uh, June, and it was at his uh, celebratory retirement party that I learned that the office had been sold, and uh, Art, Art walks over to me and says, uh, Steve, come here, uh, we sold the office. <laughs> 
oh, okay, well, good. So, but anyway, we've we've had six or eight months, but I'm I'm really thankful that I've had the time to go through and and kind of, uh, you know, they talk about when you're falling or dying, the, your life flashes before you. Well, this has been a long, slow slideshow, basically, of of seeing all the things that. Uh, had an opportunity to be involved with here. Did you keep most of the stuff here, Steve, or did you bring a lot of it at home? And um, if you did bring a lot of it at home, how, how did you balance that out with the other space needs that yeah. you had at the house? Well, I talked about those 1,800 or 2,000 <laughs> tubes. I, I mean, we literally threw away uh, probably eight dumpsters full of nothing but tubes stacked together. So, I mean, that was painful to do too, but some of them weren't in the best shape. But Certainly, I've kept some prize projects at, at home that uh, were special or that one day I might, like we did a golf and a garden for St. Leon Rote in uh, Germany that never got built, that I'd like to apply that concept somewhere else. So, uh, and we both kind of worked on our home courses a little bit, so those are special drawings as well. So, yeah, you definitely keep. There's some that are closer to your heart than others, for sure. Yeah, Sean, for you, what are some things that you have that you'll just never never part ways with? Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know that I'm quite as sentimental as Steve yeah. when it comes to <laughs> old drawings. Um, I, you know, I certainly have a lot of pictures, but I have memories yeah. as much as anything. Um, I, uh, I'd probably say, yeah, as much as anything, it's memories for me, you know, guy. It's the experiences of, of going to the Middle East with Steve uh, for a project that we had there or, or the times that, all the different times that we spent in California on various projects and, and other flying, things. We're flying over and they've got the, those uh, maps that show you where you are on the plane and we're both looking down and there's a fire down there and we look on the map. Oh, we're flying over Beirut, Beirut right now. They're at war down there. Or, no, it was Baghdad. Oh, Baghdad. That's right. I know it was one of those B words. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a, that was an eye-opening experience for me. I mean, again, I'm, I've seen a lot of the world that I never th ever thought I would ever see. Um, you know, being a small town kid from Montana, and I, I remember distinctly flying from Detroit to Amsterdam and hopping on that plane in Amsterdam, headed to Manama, Bahrain, and and seeing the flight path of that going right over Baghdad during the war, and going, "Why on earth are we flying over the top of this? And why can't we go around it?" And and then landing there and just being in a completely different world, but. It, by the same token, you know, you, you're, you're intimidated, you're a little bit scared by these new places you're going, but, you know, at that age and, and even now to this day, I, I've always had a quest to, to, to experience new places. And for me, that was one of the neatest experiences, and it's one that I look back on to this day and go, wow, that, that, that was pretty neat. I mean, I, in, in Montana, you never see them call into prayer. And when they call to prayer, you're just, you kind of look around and go, what's going on? And then you realize what's going on and you're not in Kansas anymore. And it's like, ah, all right, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. And, and you, you expect, you expect it to be different and you go in there with an open mind and you, you can find out that you, you can appreciate, you know, their culture and the way they do things a little bit different. And if you go in there with an open mind and, um, you know, a willingness to learn and, and, and have a, an appreciation for their culture, it can be a really rewarding experience. And that's not just the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everywhere we go, um, whether it's there or, or the trips that we've made to London or, you know, the, the time that I got pulled into security in Germany. You know, it's, it's, going, through, it's going through the airport in Germany. It's, a, it's all those little experiences that you have along the way that you go, 
that's pretty fun. Yeah. Those the, are good, good memories. The epicenter of the coronavirus, Wuhan, China. I bet none of you have ever been there. Well, I have been there. <laughs> I've even been robbed at a restaurant in Wuhan, China, <laughs> and lost my passport at like 8 o'clock in the evening, and uh, spent six or seven hours at a police station in Wuhan, China, but along about 5 a.m., they said, we found your briefcase in a ditch under the overpass, and they're bringing your passport back to you. So, Was that one of those moments where you're thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, it's actually the second time I'd lost my passport, so it's like, oh, I know, I've been here and done this before. So uh, that, was in, that was outside of uh, Budapest, Hungary. Yeah the first time but uh, and I got them back both times oddly enough yeah. yeah we're getting all sentimental and sappy here <laughs> but this isn't certainly an ending for you guys you have work going on all over the place uh in less dangerous places fortunately right now what's uh what's work life like now for for both of you uh Sean yeah that's it, it, a it's a very good point um guy I mean it, the reality of it is is you know we certainly went through a slower period there when the, the economy turned but we're as busy now as we've been in 10 years, um, and, and we're excited about the future. We're continuing to do a lot of work um, down in Florida. Um, you know, a lot of the golf courses down there, they go through a life cycle about every 25 to 30 years, and, um, you know, Art was very successful down there for a number of years, and so we're finding a lot of our clients are in a position where they're they're looking to kind of give their, their golf course a fresh coat of paint, and they're coming back to the original architects to say, hey, what can you do to give us back get us back to where we started? 25 years ago and so we're, we're doing a fair bit of work down there we've got a, a few projects here and there on the east coast right now a couple new nine hole projects um, one in uh, Delaware which is finishing up as we speak um, and hopefully another one that'll be starting uh, in Rhode Island within the next year or so um, we've got a few renovation projects bunker renovation projects uh, Chartiers in Pittsburgh will start this fall um, we've got we'll be finishing up uh, bunker renovation here at Highland Meadows here in town uh, this spring, um, you know, and then we're uh, maybe starting some work down at Finley Country Club down in Finley. So yeah, it's it's certainly a lot closer than Wuhan, China, or Panama, <laughs> Bahrain, and so we're very appreciative of that. But it's it's you know it's certainly not an ending for us. It's just a kind of a transition. It, you know, the the business models changed uh, from what it was 10, 15 years ago, and Steve and I are going to be working from from home and. Uh, but things are still plugging away, and we're we're staying busy, which is great. Yeah, and, and a few last things here, Steve. What is it like going back to Naples and working for some of the same clients that you worked for 25, 30 years ago? Do you see some of the same people, and how how have those golf courses evolved in the last two and a half, three decades? You know, you do see a few of the same people. Uh, at least a couple of the superintendents have been there since the beginning, uh, like at Pelican Bay in Naples. Uh, mm-hmm. Bob Bittner has been there. And then some of them have moved around. They've been superintendent at five or six of our courses in the Naples area. So that's kind of fun. But uh, it's fun to roll out an old plan and say, yeah, I I did the drafting on this plan back in 1994. It was the first ever Audubon Signature Sanctuary Golf Course. That was at Collier's Reserve in Naples. So it's fun, and it's, it's fun to get back down there, frankly. And last thing, Steve, is um, is Arthur Hill still the, the mayor of Naples, Florida? You know, we've still got a lot of courses <laughs> down, down there. Uh, yeah, that was pretty neat when Pete and I kind of referred to him as that many, many years ago. And uh, 
Yeah, you, you'll see his name attached to a lot of golf courses in southwest Florida, for sure. Well, Steve and Sean, this was, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us out to the office again. This is the second Tartan Talks we've recorded out here. And uh, good luck with what you're doing here, closing up the, the office and moving out of here. But more importantly, good luck with what you have moving forward. Thank you so much, Guy. A lot of fun. And it's been fun just reflecting on a fun 40 or 50 years in this building. Thank you, Guy. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it.